Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Book Network's New Books and Popular Culture, and I'm here with Kevin Smokler, the author of Brett Pack America, A Love Letter to 80s Teen Movies. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So I'm hoping that we can start by having you talk a little bit about... Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Book Network's New Books and Popular Culture, and I'm here with Kevin Smokler, the author of Brett Pack America, A Love Letter to 80s Teen Movies. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So I'm hoping that we can start by having you talk a little bit about why this book, what got you into writing it, and why did you want to write about Brett Pack America? Uh, so the obvious answer is uh, 80s teen movies are the movies of my childhood. I'm 43. Uh, but there have been a lot written about the movies of John Hughes and Amy Hackerling and Cameron Crowe and Martha Coolidge. And, and so I, I didn't quite know what I, what I had to say that was all that different than the other great books that have been written about The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Valley Girl. Um, but when I thought back about my experience of seeing these movies when I was a kid, uh, one of the things that resonated with me about John Hughes's movies, for example, is that they took place in the north suburbs of Chicago. And I'm originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I grew up a like I grew up a pop culture junkie who always felt like pop culture was made somewhere was made and was about somewhere else, uh, typically New York and Los Angeles. And when I found out that uh, The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off and 16 Candles and Weird Science were all about my part of the country, um, I remember what an impact that had on me as a young person. And so I, I, that sort of stuck in the back of my mind, and I thought to myself, well, if I sat down and rewatched a bunch of 80s teen movies, does where they take place make any difference, or is that just some warm but ultimately meaningless memory from my childhood? And when I sat down and started rewatching, I realized that not only was were the north suburbs of Chicago kind of the capital city of, of this thing I call I ended up calling Brat Pack America, but many of these movies collectively uh, were very much about place and, the, and together in amalgam um, widened our idea of what America looked like on screen. And that was a very powerful notion to me, and, and that's, uh, that was sort of where it all began. And so you start with... John Hughes, right? Which is sort of where many of us go to when we think of 80s movies. So can you talk- uh, actually I start before I start before John Hughes I right. start because be, because John Hughes is a John Hughes didn't start directing until 1984. So John Hughes is if 80s teen movies are the history of rock and roll. John Hughes is the Beatles, not Chuck Berry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the first chapter comes in with John Hughes, right? So now the first chapter is about the first chapter is about right. what am the I- movies that led in. 
led into Johnny. So let's talk about the, the movies that, oh, that's right, Breaking Away. I am sorry. Um, Breaking Away and My Bodyguard, my favorite, My Bodyguard. Now I'm remembering yeah. it, right? And all those. So so can we talk a little bit about those movies that led into that John Hughes? What, and, I'm, and I think I've told you this before, but I'm so glad that you brought up My Bodyguard because I think it's one of the best movies. Right, yeah. Uh, you know. And really ahead of its time. Uh, mm-hmm. Really a movie... A movie like Breaking Away, which was revolutionary in that it is about a teenager and told from the teenager's point of view, and the teenager doesn't represent anything except their own story, um, versus versus the teenagers in American Graffiti, which are vehicles of adult nostalgia, and the teenagers in, say, Rebel Without a Cause that are indicative of a social problem. Um, the uh, Breaking Away gets credit from me for being the first 80s teen movie mm-hmm. uh, and very consequentially takes place in Bloomington, Indiana. Um, there are only there hasn't been many movies, really any since that have taken place in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, but Breaking Away being the first movie of this of this time that is about young people and uh, and is uh, young people at the center of their own story and is also self-consciously uh, happens in the middle of America. Uh, a, a, a an environment and a landscape of young people that the decade before was largely confined to the coasts, was largely confined to stories about uh, the Northeast and California. Um, and then My Bodyguard comes along just a year later uh, and takes place very proudly in the city of Chicago right. in a time in a time that was not in, in 1980 in a time that was not really a high point for growing up in the city of Chicago. Right. Uh, but, but my bodyguard is not about the suburbs the way, the way John, John Hughes movies would be four years later. It is in fact proudly about the city itself and it makes it look like a wondrous place for a teenage, a teenager to grow up. Um, and I, I, I don't know in fact if it was, but I have a feeling that it had to be some sort of inspiration for John Hughes. Right. Um, and then also in that chapter we have movies like we have movies like Animal House and Fame and um and The Warriors um which all widen our idea of what it mean uh, of what it means to be widen our geographic idea of what it means to be young in America. Mm-hmm. Uh Animal House of course takes place in the past and 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 was actually about Dartmouth College but is but is you know but it never snows, and, and uh, <laughs> it, it never snows, and it's too. Uh, and, and even though the whole thing is sort of done in autumnal colors, uh, Animal House we now know proudly was filmed in Eugene, Oregon, on the campus of the University of Oregon, and is part of that is part of that weird pop culture that that actually that wonderful pop culture moment where uh, the liberal arts colleges and universities of Oregon were producing some of our great iconoclastic humorists and pop culture figures. You know, it was from that, it was from that environment that Matt Groening made the Simpsons Mm. that Linda Berry um, did her first cartoons, uh, you know, in business that Phil Knight invented the Phil Knight and partner invented the Nike shoe. And then, uh, and then a decade later we get, you know, we get the beginnings of, we get the beginnings of alternative rock. It's where, it's where Slater Kinney comes from, Mm -hmm. for example. Um, so, uh, animal house was kind of at the very beginning of that. Um, and, uh, and of course, fame and the warriors both take place in New York, but are both very much about this, but are both very much about this conflicted idea of what it means to be young in New York. The warriors is, is very defiantly about Coney Island and not Manhattan. Um, and, um, and fame is very much about how New York itself represents, um, represents, uh, uh, the success and failure of a youthful dream. Um, 
all of those, all of those kind of kind of are the older brothers and sisters of the teen movies that were yet to come. Right. And what do you think it is about these movies that set the stage for this sort of um, this 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 influx, this huge sort of move to this 80s teen movies? In addition to being movies where young people were simply human beings and not um, representations of of anything, um, not not representations of a political or social moment, um, each one of those movies was to some degree responsible for a trope we would see later on in the history of 80s movies. My Bodyguard proudly shifts the center of the 80s movie to the middle of the country, most notably Chicago. Um, fame is a forerunner to um, the 80s sports movie where uh, where mm. excelling at something is is a ticket not only into adulthood but out of one's one's crappy circumstances growing up. Right. Um, Animal House is very much the group of misfits take on the system movie that would later give us that would later give us um, Savage Steve Holland's movies like Better Off Dead and One Crazy Summer. Um, each of them, each of them created a, a formula, and they really were formulas by which, um, the, by which the great filmmakers of the 80s teen movie could execute upon. And one of those sort of great filmmakers who figured out a really good formula is John Hughes. So then you move into sort of talking about John Hughes in Shermer, Illinois. So can you talk a little bit about Hughes in that chapter? Yeah, I mean John we John Hughes is the is the is sort of the one that stands in for the group. We think of mm-hmm. when we say 80s teen movie we think John Hughes. John Hughes only directed four movies about teenagers. Um Ferris Bueller's Day Off, The Breakfast Club Weird Science and 16 Candles. Uh most very very notably Pretty in Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful were written by but not directed by John Hughes and both were filmed in Los Angeles and not in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um the uh but it was really John Hughes who made the North Suburbs of Chicago kind of any town USA, a series of blank pages that one could craft their own teen experience on top of. And he did that by his movies being both mythical and realistic at the same time. Emotionally realistic, we felt everything that we felt everything um, that the characters in John Hughes movies feel. Um, and yet we, and yet the plots sort of verged on the fantastical. Uh, very few of us actually served all day detention or hijacked a German day parade float the way Ferris Bueller did. Um, and, uh, and so John Hughes movies work more, are, are more emotionally relatable than they are plot wise. And the place where that conflict happens is this creation called Shermer, Illinois, which on the one hand seems like a, a town that, uh, in any town USA, you know, a Wittenberg, Ohio, or a Grover's Corners um, of the 80s teen film, but on the other hand was very notably uh, almost entirely white and upper middle class and heteronormative and, and, um, and therefore was universal in emotion, if not universal in demographic or detail. Um, and that, to be fair, that might have been exactly what the North Suburbs of Chicago looked like in the mid-1980s. It isn't anything of what they look like now. Right. Um, now, if you were to film Breakfast Club in exactly the same high school in Des Plaines, Illinois, you'd have to have like one Latino kid and one gay kid and one black kid and one Asian kid because that's what Des Plaines looks like now. So what do you think it is about like you you talk about this sort of emotional relatability. Like, are there other things that John Hughes did that made him 
that that made these movies start. These movies, like kids, are still watching them today, right? <laughs> they're returning to them. They're talking about them. I have so many students who know all those John Hughes movies and can talk about those movies in ways that we don't talk about some of these other movies. Um, so, do you think it is that emotional relatability? What are those things that John Hughes does really well? I think part of it is that, and part of it is that John Hughes was sort of operating from a set of of movie parts that were timeless rather than timely. We 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 do associate his movies with the mid nineteen eighties, but you remove the sort of hairstyles and soundtrack choices. We're really talking about updates of of classic Hollywood and American theater. Um, plots. Uh, the uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is really on the town with high school students instead of sailors. Um, the pretty uh, the the Sixteen Candles is really a Doris Day Rock Hudson comedy with with Anthony Michael Hall playing the Tony Randall role. Um, the Breakfast Club is the Ice Man the Ice Man cometh in high school mm-hmm. or a long day's journey into night in detention. Um, <laughs> and so uh, so. And, and, and most of the dialogue that we that is so quotable in, in a John Hughes movie is not is not stuck to 1985. Like there's very little references to contemporary pop culture or or the political or social moment. Um, the dialogue is memorable precisely because it exists out of time. You know, we uh, Judd Nelson using the phrase "neo maxi zoom dweeby" is probably <laughs> something that, like Gidget said in the early 1960s, but you wouldn't know that. It, it, it sounds like it was created whole cloth for that for that movie, which which allows any teenager at any time to find it enjoyable and relatable. Right. <laughs> and 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 let's adults return to it and remember all that. Sure. <laughs> and then you move into so you you mentioned that. That, that John Hughes only directed three of the movies, or four of those movies that he wrote, right? And so you move into that, like the LA and the Los Angeles team movies. So can you talk a little bit about that chapter? And, it, you know, you have Pretty in Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful, but also movies like The Karate Kid and Bill and Ted and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah, it, it is It is only a coincidence that that the two John Hughes movies that are most about class, Pretty in Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful, are the two that were filmed in Los Angeles. They were filmed in Los Angeles because Howie Deutsch was a young, Howard Deutsch, who made them, was a young director, and and, and probably the studio wanted to keep an eye on him. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it is odd, oddly coincidental, that those movies can be grouped with Car- The Karate Kid and Valley Girl and Fast Times at Richmond High and Suburbia and Stand and Deliver, which are all movies about teenagers in Los Angeles in the 1980s and are all about money and class. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and, um, and then you stack those up against the fact that in the mid-1980s, Los Angeles was hosting the Olympics. Um, which they advertise to the world as as the great class leveler of the city. You know that 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 the Olympics would show Los Angeles to be a place where people of all different classes existed in harmony with one another, um, which was actually complete nonsense because because the uh, because the LAPD did things like like razor wire off the off the Olympic grounds from the poor neighborhoods that surrounded it. So uh, so the the idea of Los Angeles as a classless society was something Los Angeles didn't even believe itself or demonstrate. And, um, and it was the, it was strangely enough, the movies of that time that were more honest about Los Angeles than Los Angeles could be about itself. 
And so can you talk a little bit about what are some of the ways that the movies do that? Like some of these films bring that in and show and really highlight and show that happening in L.A.? Yeah, I mean, you know, Valley Girl is a Valley Girl is a class romance, you know. It's a, it's a Romeo and Juliet, but it's about a Romeo and Juliet where the where the dividing thing between the lovers is is LA geography and money. Um Romeo and Juliet is two noble families. Um these are uh, in, uh Valley Girl is a is a is a kid from the valley who who which is seen as moneyed and a kid from Hollywood which is seen as poor and the interesting thing about this movie is the the Valley Girl is actually uh, uh, a middle class kid whose whose parents own who, whose parents are ex hippies who own a health food store. Um, uh, the Karate Kid, the entire the entire um, romance plot of the Karate Kid is very much about money um, and and two teenagers who two teenagers who uh, ultimately believe they should be together, even though one lives in Encino and one lives in Reseda, famously enough, <laughs> and um, you know, suburbia is a is a look at L.A. punk culture at that time, and is largely about a fight over territory. Um, a bunch of poor kids who live in a punk house who um, who are considered an intrusion on the nearby middle class suburban neighborhoods. Um, these are all movies where where young people are are trying to uh, uh, get what they want, be it uh, in romance or in simply being left alone. And they're sort of increasingly having to scale a wall of a very slippery wall of class and money to do it. And one th- and, and one movie you bring up and then you enter and I really appreciate the sort of interviews you have interspersed throughout. So throughout each chapter, you have sort of interviews. And one person you talk to is Amy Heckerling and you talk about fast times at Richmond High and. Her, you talk with her and also talk about that and sort of screenwriter Cameron Crowe. So I appreciate, too, that sort of look at these female directors and the importance of what she was doing in the 80s and how that sort of applies to Clueless and some of the other films that she did. Yeah, it was it was very it was very important to me that this not be a book that said it was about 80s teen movies, but was really about John Hughes. Of, right. of, the, of the 55 movies in this book, six of them are John Hughes movies. And you can't tell the story of this genre without talking about really great female female filmmakers like Amy Heckerling and Martha Coolidge, um, who who are the older siblings of 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 the great female filmmakers to follow in the next in the next decade, like like Alison people like Alison Anders and Nancy Savoka and um, the um, the. Fast Times is a particularly interesting case because Amy Heckerling was 29 when she made it, so she was quite a bit she she was she was quite a bit older than the, than the characters those, those those actors were playing, and um and she has said uh, quite astutely I think that Fast Times is basically a movie about kids growing up too fast, mm-hmm. um and these kids in one of the ways these kids in this movie do grow up too fast is they all have jobs and they are all constantly preoccupied with money. Um, not because it was the eighties and they're greedy, but because it's pretty clear that everybody in fast times at Richmond high is a, uh, lower middle to middle class kid. Um, and they all need money to have the kind of fun kids have in 1981. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they work at movie theaters and they work at shopping malls and pizza places. And the reason, part of the reason that Sean Penn's character, Jeff Spicoli, is such a wonderful creation is because he's so proudly lazy. And and he seems, in contrast to everybody else in this movie who is always scrambling and working all the time. 
and um and he he seems completely unfazed by it um he is he is the happy he doesn't change he has no arc but he is the happiest character in this movie um and at the very end when judge reinhold says why don't you get a job spicoli and he says all i need is uh, some tasty waves and a cool buzz and i'm fine and you believe him because (laughs) because 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 jeff spicoli has not had a moment of angst this entire movie like um and uh he he seems to be sort of standing there as a living breathing living breathing rebuke to all of the other characters in this movie and also to the sort of to the sort of coming of rabid consumer culture of that decade it's hard for me because i always compare i want sean penn to be that character again and he never is Uh. yeah i mean it's and and sean penn sean penn famously um has been asked before like like what do you have to say about jeff spicoli and he just sort of shakes his head and says it's all up there on screen I mean that's the way Sean Penn kind of works as an actor. When the when the role is done, he's moved on from right. it. <laughs> but I miss it so much. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. <laughs> so and you move and then I appreciate too. So we we have LA, right? We have all these movies that everybody you know, a lot of those LA movies are those movies people remember and return to. But then you move to sort of uh Hip hop movies, right? Beat Street, Wild Style, House Party. And I appreciate that move too, because I think some of those movies are a lot of times lost when we talk about the 80s, right? So can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, I, I was sort of inspired by a, a, an article on BET's website that came out. We, we do not regard House Party as an 80s teen movie, but should, because, um, because A, it is in fact a movie about the culture of adolescence during that time, and B, it was also discovered at Sundance. So it, it, it manages to be both an 80s teen movie and the beginning of, so, and part of the beginning of the American independent film movement from that time, along with, you know, Sex Lies and Videotape and Roger and Me and movies like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, House Party sort of comes at the end of the first generation of hip-hop movies, all of which, uh, if we're talking about Wild Style and Beat Street and Crush Groove, all of which were very proudly made in New York. Unlike very, very few other teen movies of the 1980s, there were almost no teen movies of the 1980s made in New York, with one or two exceptions, but almost none. Um, And these movies uh, are are often about the beginnings of hip-hop music and culture and are often very proudly New York-based. And I see them as kind of attempting to set the historical record straight to give hip-hop as a musical form a birthplace. Uh, the same the same act has been done on movements in American popular music since the very beginning, you know, to give to give jazz um to give jazz a birthplace in New Orleans or country a birthplace in Bristol, Tennessee. Um, we uh, there is a there is an an act of myth making that goes into the creation of any new musical form, and that's that's the purpose these movies serve. House Party, which was which was filmed in Los Angeles for uh, budgetary reasons, um, is not only signals a shift of interest in hip hop culture from East Coast to West Coast because the movies that make use of hip hop music and musicians to follow. Uh, be they Boys in the Hood and Menace to Society and Set It Off are all L.A. movies, uh, which would all come in the in the early to mid-90s. Uh, but also, the characters in House Party reference those other movies. So they reference Wild Style and Beat Street and Crush Groove as if to say they are younger and a generation removed from them. Mm-hmm. 
It was also really important to me that these that the story of the 80s teen movie not be the story of the white upper middle class from the north suburbs of Chicago teenager, because that story is told that way is myopic and incomplete. Right. And I appreciate that move because some of these movies, like people might not have seen, right? Unless sure. you're really interested in sort of 80s hip hop, you know, sort of this history of hip hop. I would probably guess that House Party is one that people have seen more than even Wild, Wild Style or some of these others. So I sure. appreciate that that discussion that you have in that move to, to introduce some people to these movies and sort of say, like, these were filmed in New York. Um, proudly in New York and they sort of give um, a larger context to the birth of hip hop and that kind of thing. It, it was important for me to do two things. One, to acknowledge how these movies were received in their day and House Party was a, was a hit, like yes. a, a big hit. So a lot of people saw it and Wild Style was a cult film that not a lot of people saw. Um, and that, and we, we, we don't know that because some of the ones we, we remember and we, we tend to think because we remember them, they must have been hits. But, you know, The Lost Boys was a flop when it mm-hmm. came out. Um, Sixteen Candles was mildly successful, but really was successful because of home video, not because of how it did in the theater. Um, so uh, that distinction was important to me. And it was also important to me that um, a book about 80s teen movies, while clearly being a love letter, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of pretty much all of these movies, and I think they all hold up beautifully, also examine that, that, those terms rigorously, um, you know, to be, very, to be both firm and, and, and expansionist and complete on what it meant to talk to, well, what an 80s teen movie is. Mm-hmm. So and then you move into, and I really appreciated this because I didn't really think about it until I read, you know, and then I was like, oh, well, duh, this happens. You talk about sort of this move of 80, 80s teen movies back into the 1950s, right? So yeah. back to the future, Peggy Sue got married, Dirty Dancing, all these. So can you talk a little bit about that move and that move back to the 50s? Sure. I mean, there was a, these are all variations of, 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 Ronald Reagan's famous Morning in America um, campaign campaign ad of 1984, which was considered one of the greatest campaign ads of all time. And the idea was that, you know, uh, America is better. Ronald Reagan was running for his second term in office, and the idea was that America was better than it had been in the last four years, so why would you change anything? And the uh, the image of it being better was this image from what, was perceived as a forgotten America of small towns and good people and, um, and clean streets and, uh, and, um, and a kind of, a kind of mythic small town America, Eisenhower era America, which we all know is not true and never happened. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, but there was a, uh, kind of in line with that, there was a whole lot of movies from this time that saw the American past as the, the sort of late fifties, early sixties, Eisenhower Kennedy era American path. So you, so you're talking about Back to the Future and Stand by Me and Peggy Sue Got Married and and uh, Dirty Dancing and Dead Poet Society. Um, and all of these movies have a conflicted relationship with the past and with nostalgia for it. Um, and yet they were all kind of seen as uh, a look at the past as if. What came between 1959 and 1989 never happened. Hmm. Um, so in Back to the Future, 1985 is the present, 1955 is the past, 
the 1960s and 70s therefore never happened. Um, we're looking at America, in quote, before the 60s wrecked everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stand By Me is is the main character, Gordy Lachance, at age 12 in 1959, and in the present as a grown adult with kids. We don't get to see Gordy Lachance in college dropping acid or protesting the Vietnam War. Right. Um, as if to say that period of time never happened. Uh, remove, redacted by omission. Um, I don't think the filmmakers meant to do that. I think, but that was that was sort of the effect of of the movies that frequently uh, took the movies from this time that frequently took place in the late Eisenhower, early Kennedy era. And then, you know, the the further along you get in the decade, the more those movies predict the coming of the '60s. The Dirty Dancing and Dead Poets, which both come at the end of the 1980s, are both about time and transition, um, the end of one era and the beginning of another. Um, and, um, and they both say, and they, one of them, one of them says that era should come and one of them says that era should not. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but they're both about the fact that that change is in fact, is inevitable. And it's really interesting too, to start to think about that, especially in the context of the 1980s and in the context of Reagan America and sort of this, Mm -hmm. this strong conservative move that was happening in America and in, you know, sort of in government and politics and also within the country. Right. Sure. So you move from that into the discussion around the sort of sports movies, right? And so can you talk a little bit about um, those 80 sports movies and what was going on in the 80s? I mean, and you have a mixture of 80 sports, right? You have this humor of Better Off Dead and Caddyshack and also Ooh. some very serious things that were going on in like All the Right Moves So, can you Vision Quest. So can you talk about the 80s sports movies a little? Yeah, the I mean, the 80s sports movie ostensibly begins in 1977 with Rocky. Um, mm-hmm. And as the uh, which is which is a movie and, and every 80 sports movie is is about it contains a similar uniquely American paradox, which is that they argue that the art they argue at the end that winning, in fact, solves everything. Mm-hmm. Every plot is tied up by someone winning something at the end. And yet the main character who wins has to be an underdog. It can, it, it, you know, they cannot be they cannot be the best at what they do. Um, they have to learn to be the best. So it's as if to say at the same time, America wants to win all the time, but America always wants to be seen as a, uh, as a gracious, less than entitled winner. Um, so that sort of, for some reason, that plot often manifested itself with the idea of a teenager who was good at sports using sports to get out of an dying, a dying, a, a, a life in a dying industrial town, which is a little bit of what's in breaking away, but that kind of leads to, that kind of leads to all the right moves and vision quest. Um, those movies do have winning at the end. The person who wins is never quite the best at what they do, or we spend the movie seeing them training to be the best at what they do. Um, the, uh, Caddyshack and Better Off Dead are structured like sports movies, um, but they're really about they're, they really just use the sort of the sort of rigid framework of a sports movie to hang uh, progressively rising levels of ridiculousness and satire <laughs> on. Um, and then the decade kind of kind of ends if, if from a sports movie point of view. The decade kind of ends in a real kind of not with a bang but with a whimper. 
it, with a really terrible movie called Johnny Be Good, which yes. which came out in March of 1988, um, uh, and is about the sort of the sort of crazy corrupt lengths people will go to to get a star high school football player to come to their uh, college football program. Um, it's a terrible movie. It's not funny. It tries to be funny, uh, and it falls completely flat. And yet, it is a movie that kind of predicts the coming of where we are in sports movies now. The the, the, the contemporary sports movie has kind of been defined by Friday Night Lights, mm-hmm. which is which is not which is movies not consumed with winning, but about the cost of being the social and cultural cost of being consumed with winning. Um, never mind that Johnny be good though. It looks like Southern California and everybody's always blonde. Everybody in the movie is blonde and driving around convertibles was actually filmed in central Texas, right outside of Austin at the same time that Texas football was under investigation by the NCAA. Mm. So seeing this terrible movie about, about recruiting violations. And if you were a Texan at the time and recognizing that it was filmed in central Texas, I think would be a very bitter pill to swallow. Um, and that, and of course that movie comes out in March of 1988. And in September of 1988, Buzz Bissinger lands in Odessa, Texas to write the book that will become about the 1988 football season that will become the basis of Friday night Lights. Yeah. I have to tell you that like, because Johnny B. Good was so bad, it took mm-hmm. me a long time to like, watch Friday Night Lights <laughs> and pay because I was like, is this just going to be another one of these horrible football films, right? Or horrible football television shows. And then I was pleasantly happy with Friday Night sure. Lights, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, Friday Night Lights is kind of where is kind of how we view sports, sports fictional storytelling. Now it's the lens by which we see it. Um, right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, I think it, it was a very interesting transition over about eight years. Um, into and and you move from that sort of these sports films into looking at like and I appreciate this your moves to write these all these moves into sort of these different genres because we move from these sort of these sports films into this more like teen movies with technology right and thinking about um I don't know if I want to call it the nerdier side of the teen film but that move into thinking about what technology does and I think this plays in, I think you talk about it a little with what's going on in the 80s and sort of this fear of technology. So can you talk a bit about those 80s movies with technology? Yeah, each of the, uh, this of course is the, the, the 80s, if you think about what was, what was new and different at the beginning of the decade and, and quite, quite normal at the end, it's pretty remarkable, you know. Mm-hmm. If you think about cable television and, the personal computer and the cell phone and the video game, um, all of these things that, 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 that were, were objects of science fiction at the beginning of the decade, which became pretty routine at the end. It was an enormous period of technological change. And as we all know, young people are often the early adapters of new technologies. And of course, that is reflected in the teen movies of this time, um, where personal computers often run, which are, which are, Inevitably, devices of entertainment and uh, and and teenage pleasure uh, run face to face with people who'd like to use them for uh, as as weapons of war. So mm-hmm. uh, so you get you get movies like War Games and movies like Real Genius and uh, in in a sort of more obviously funny way, movies like Weird Science. Um, <laughs> All of which are about this moment when when technology goes from being 
um, being the property of the government and the military and big business to being the moment when it, it, it becomes the property of everybody. Um, and so it's no wonder that movies like War Games and Real Genius are seen as the, as the forerunners to, not a, to Silicon Valley culture. And, and startup culture. Uh, we, it is a pretty straight line from real genius, from real genius to hackers yes. to the South by Southwest interactive festival to the Silicon Valley television show. Like. Right. And it's really interesting, right? It's really interesting to think about how technology is thought of and portrayed in the eighties and then how people who sort of grew up watching these films many times talk about technologies and the dangers of technology, even if we're even if we did grow up right in that time period where technology was there was so much more technology. And as you said, what was sort of new and different, it became this sort of normalized thing. But we still I, I think a lot of folks were around the same age, have this large fear of that technology still. And, 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 it, and it's portrayed and it shows in those films, which is really interesting. Yeah, it was, I, I, I've considered it now that I'm, I'm far from being a teenager. I've considered it my life goal to one of my life goals at age 43, to never be like the parents in weird science or real genius or war games, to never be one of those people who thought all, who thought innovation and, 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 and things, pointing us towards the future were cool and then and then turn and then I turned 40 and got scared of them and said yeah. and, and um and said no 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 well it was it was great when I was your age but now it's dangerous and scary because I don't and, and therefore you know societally harmful because I don't understand it um I I never wanted to be one of those people. And so I tried hard not to be. No, and you know what? Yes. I, and I'm, I'm with you right on there. Like, you know, it's very hard for me to listen to people say those kids and that technology. And I'm like, Hey, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so, and then you start to talk about one of my, well, um, some of my favorites, especially Heather's, but those sort of those darker teenage movies and sort of where the 80s starts to end, right? With Over the Edge, um, Bad Boys, um, The Legend of Billie Jean. So can you talk about sort of that, that like the, the darker side of the 80s teen films? Yeah, I, you could say, you could say much like, much like music at that time, uh, uh, teen, teen films were, were kind of split in two. Uh, we, 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 this seems very anachronistic now, but, but, but back then we used to think of music as mainstream and alternative. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and those terms don't really mean much anymore, but, um, but the teen movie kind of exhibited that bifurcated personality also. Um, meaning if John Hughes was the pop music of, of teen movies in the, in the 1980s where good kids, basic good kids from good homes basically tried to do good and everything worked out. Okay. At the end, uh, the opposite were kind of the college radio of, um, of the eighties teen movies where, which were movies that were a direct descendant of the seventies horror movie. Um, you'll, uh, you've, probably noticed before that the seventies horror movies had a preponderance of possessed children in them, uh, be they the omen or, uh, or the exorcist or the shining. Um, and it's been studied. I'm, I'm not, it's, it's not me who invented this idea. It's been studied. And, and it said, this is because people, people who were hippies were settling down and having children and were really afraid of what that, uh, of what kind of parents they would be. And they, and they were terrified of sort of, of sort of the social responsibility that came with being parents. And so there were a lot of horror movies about that fear because horror movies are always about our fears. Um, right. 
that what if what if you um, decided to raise children and they turned into little monsters? Um, flash forward a decade to the 1980s, and that same fear is present, but those children are now teenagers, and so you have the same the same fear being put into movies uh, that end up being sort of apocalyptic visions of a world gone mad because it is run by young people, mm-hmm. um, and um, and those taking that same argument from the point of view of the teenage character in a teen movie, uh, the world being uh, unwelcome and viewing you as a criminal because you are a young person. Um, and so that really starts with Over the Edge in 1980, which which would later become Kurt Cobain's, which, were late, which was Kurt Cobain's favorite movie and later would become the inspiration for the music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it go it takes us through movies like Taps and Bad Boys and The Legend of Billie Jean and sort of ultimately ends at Heather's in that moment where uh in that moment where um Heather's mom or not, not Heather's mom, I'm sorry, Veronica's mom, Winona Ryder's <laughs> character's mom, says, Well, excuse me, little Miss Voice of a Generation. But it's my understanding that when teenagers ask to be treated <laughs> when teenagers are mad about being treated like human beings, it's because they are being treated like human beings. <laughs> Uh, and Daniel Waters, the screenwriter for that movie, has said, I really wanted to show um, that not the teenagers could be good and parents could be awful, but the teenagers could be just as awful as parents. <laughs> um, and um, and it's really Heather's that kind of satir- not only set- that, that satirizes the 80s teen movie and then literally blows it up. Um, basically showing when a movie can be satirized, it's, when a genre can be satirized, it's time has probably passed. Um, and it's it's not it's not. It is probably coincidental, but we do see the coming of the next pop culture decade in Heathers. We see the coming of the early 90s with the, you know, the heavy eyeliner and the strong coffee and the dyed black hair that, that, that Christian Slater has and, um, and the sort of moral ambiguity at the center of that movie. Right. And it's just like that. My bodyguard I love, but I, and Heather is just, it's one of those, I watched it a couple of months ago. I rewatched it. It's just like, the, like the dialogue in that movie is just absolutely brilliant. It is. It is. It's just yeah. so quotable. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, and it's not. And it's not. It's not specific. It's not dated. It's not timed to 1989. It's. Um, it's in fact. It's timeless because. Um, and that's part of why it's so quotable. You don't. You don't watch Heather's and 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 say, "Oh, I'm so uncomfortable because this reminds me of being a junior in high school." It, um, it, the movie holds up remarkably well. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I love the fact that there is another generation who's paying attention to Heathers. Like, sometimes there's these movies, like, I feel like my bodyguard has gotten lost. I keep bringing it up, but I think it's so good, and I don't think enough people have seen it. Um, but I don't think, but I think Heathers, people are still finding Heathers, right? And they're still returning I, I, I to I think Heathers. so. I, my bodyguard, unfortunately, was a little too ahead of its time. It came, it came earlier. It feels like a John Hughes movie, but it came earlier than a John Hughes movie. And it, it, and frankly, this is no slag to the filmmakers of the performances. My bodyguard feels like television. My mm-hmm. bodyguard feels like, like an after school special. Um, and so I think it get, it kind of gets lost because it's hard to fit into a category. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it seems to have, have sort of not, it seems to have been its own movement and not part of a movement. Yes. Um, Heather's, I am, I am still surprised. And, and this is, this is like, this is important to remember when talking about these movies. Heather's was not a hit. Heather's Mm-mm. was a giant flop. Um, because it, the studio that made it was going bankrupt as Heather's was being released. 
So um, Heather's was entirely discovered after the fact. And a lot of and a lot of that discovery still hasn't happened yet. Uh, I, I did an event recently where, of course, everybody's heard of the bodyguard. Uh, of course, everybody's heard of the Breakfast Club. Nobody's heard of Over the Edge, and twenty mm, percent of the people in the room had heard of Heather's. Mm. Uh, and this was largely people in their twenties and early thirties. Now, if you say Heather's was the inspiration for Mean Girls, which it obviously was, right. um, everybody knows what you're talking about. If you say there's a direct line from Heather's to Jawbreaker to um, to Mean Girls, to um, you know, to Gossip Girl, to uh, it, it, it all makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But Heather's is still um, a movie that is in the process of being discovered, um, and I think a lot of that is because a lot of that is because the generation that weren't teenagers at that time think of. I mean, they 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 they, they don't really have a, an anchoring of uh, Winona Ryder and Christian Slater's uh, teenage filmography. Yes. Um, most, of the, most of the movies, unfortunately, that Winona Ryder and Christian Slater made at that time when they were teenagers were not hits. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so it's, it, there, isn't, there isn't a giant, there isn't a Ferris Bueller's Day Off in there where you know, Matthew Broderick is in his 50s and will always be remembered as Ferris. Right. Um, um, not enough people have seen Heather's to always remember Christian Slater as Jason Dean. Yes. <laughs> and yet those two, like, they're identified that way for me all the time. Um, and then, me too. Okay. I, like, that's it. It's so fun. I'm, like, trying to think of, like, what else did I really care about? Like, well, and Gleaming the Cube. Like, Christian, like, that was my other big Christian Slater film um, that I really loved growing up. But, yeah, Pub of the Volume was mine, uh, which, yes, which I think uh, is completely ahead of its time and, and sort of predicted the coming of the Internet, even though it was about a pirate radio. Yes. Um, yes, I forgot about it. It's hard to like, the, like those two are people who I re- will watch. And I think it doesn't matter what they do because of the, some of those films, like some of those films that weren't real hits. But they were like I was so invested in those characters that they played and the roles that they had. Yeah, I, I think I think those those two actors suffered from their their big movies being far too linked with a particular place and time. Mm-hmm. Um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, I, I don't know why I, I just keep bringing it up because it's a very easy example. But right. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is is was a hit from the moment it was born. Like like that Ferris Bueller's. You can't be nostalgic. Being nostalgic for Ferris Bueller's Day Off is like being nostalgic for General Motors. I mean, like it's it's never gone anywhere. <laughs> it's never not been a part of our culture. So if nostalgia is the act of missing something that's gone, you can't miss it because it never went anywhere. <laughs> um, Heather's Heather's is very much Heather's I I feel is a classic and most people who love it do but it is it is very much about the transition from the 80s to the 90s mm-hmm. the same way that Winona Ryder would make reality bites 4 years later and it it feels painfully early 90s mm-hmm. um i think pump up the volume probably feels painfully early 90s i think gleaming the cube probably does too um these uh, these are great movies, but they have not shaken loose the bonds of the time from which they came, and so um, it's hard. It's those it's hard for those movies to be remembered twenty years later, except as time capsules. Right, and so and I appreciate what you do in your book, where you know you sort of sort of give us this history and and bring us on this sort of this you know memory walk and thinking about these, and then in your final chapter, your final two chapters, you want us to sort of think 
a little sort of outside the box. So the first um, that is sort of you, you first you talk about the cities and towns being changed because of the movies that were filmed there. Right. Like and, and this and you talk about it in here, but I still remember the huge Goonies controversy, right? About the Goonies house and people so frustrated. Mm-hmm. And and you talk about like what does this mean? Like we we have these films, but then they were also filmed in real places, right? Bloomington, Indiana, um, with the bicycle with breaking away. And so can you talk a little bit about like how this geography has really shaped actual geography, right? Like not this sort of mythic geography, but actually these places that they're talk about and filmed in. Sure. Uh the there is, there continues to, particularly as movie tourism has grown as an industry. And, and, and if you talk to someone who studies the travel industry, they will say that what is called location vacations are a bona fide segment of the travel industry. People going to places where favorite movies and where favorite moments of pop culture happened. Um, uh, I, I don't exactly know when that began. Um, I, I would, I think, on most people's current radar, it, it probably began with the Lord of the Rings movies mm-hmm. and the promotion they did with New Zealand Airlines, where where the whole they essentially rebranded the airlines as like Middle Earth Airlines, and right. you could go visit the places. Um, Middle Earth obviously isn't a real place, but um, <laughs> but you could visit the new the, the places in New Zealand where that where that movie was filmed, uh, where those movies were filmed. Um, for my purpose, um, it hap- for my purpose, it, you still have things like the Mystic Pizza Pizza Restaurant in Mystic, Connecticut, attracting thousands of tourists every summer to sample Mystic Pizza. Um, and I and I guess hopefully seeing Julia Roberts in the next booth. I don't know, but um, <laughs> the uh, um, you get people going to Astoria every summer to see the Goonies House and. And the beach where the three rocks were, which began the Goonies adventure. Um, Astoria, it's, it's particularly controversial in Astoria because Astoria ever, when it ceased to be a, a fishing and timber town in the, in the sixties and seventies, um, Astoria has been a, a tourist town for a good 40 years now. And, and beginning, Astoria is a, is a port of call for cruise ships from East Asia. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there have, oh, Astoria has always felt like a place that has made its living on outsiders. Um, at least for the last 40 years. And it's particularly hard because Astoria is not a big town. It's 10,000 people. And every five years, 10,000 people show up in Goonies costumes to, um, to, uh, celebrate this movie that they love. Um, no other movie, Astoria, there's been a good dozen movies you recognized filmed in Astoria, like Short Circuit and Kindergarten Cop and, and Free Willy. Uh, none of them seem to attract the attention that the Goonies does. Um, and, uh, so, and, and on it goes. Uh, Um, the, uh, the, uh, Footloose was uh, – th- there is only one location really left standing from Footloose, and it was the flour mill with, where the dance at the end of Footloose is held and also where uh, Kevin Bacon's character worked. Um, that is a working flour mill. It has been a working flour mill for over 100 years. So you can't go visit and walk around and do the Footloose dance because it is a working flour <laughs> mill. Um, but people show up just to stand on the friggin' loading dock where Ke- you know where, where Kevin Bacon <laughs> – pulled off sacks of flowers in a scene that is totally inconsequential to what Footloose is actually about. Um, when Footloose was remade in 2011 and was not filmed in Utah, it was filmed in Georgia, the 
market in the country that sold the most tickets opening weekend was Provo, Utah, um, <laughs> because Provo, Utah is very proud of being the place where Footloose was filmed, even right. though there's no trace of it anywhere anymore. No, and this in this chapter, my, my... The, the footprint these movies leave on the landscape. And I took that to be a symbol of their permanence. You know, right. it's not just that they have great dialogue or memorable characters. They launched the careers of a thousand talented artists. It's that we have actually made them part of our landscape in America. Oh, yeah. Like, my youngest sister is a big... We, she and I are both big 80s movies fans, and she... Dirty Dancing is her favorite. Her dog's named Francis, but she calls her dog Baby. And mm-hmm. one of her dreams is to go to... They have those Dirty Dancing weekends, right? You can go to the Catskills. You can do the whole Dirty Dancing thing. And, yeah. like, you know, she's... You can't go to the Catskills because those resorts don't exist anymore, but which, you, is, which, is, which is a little bit ghoulish way to look at dirty dancing because you're looking at you're looking at a culture that's dead right um, but the but the resorts where that movie was filmed are in are in north carolina and virginia and you are right they have mm-hmm. they both have uh, dirty dancing uh, dirty dancing weekends every summer right and she's just like 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 you talk about that tourism like you know she's done met much of this right but like that idea of going to these places is something you want to do and it's not only because of the film but it's like being in that location and being in that place is really mm-hmm. important um, and you end with, and I appreciate this too, that end with sort of this call to like, okay, so yeah, this might be nostalgic, but there's something more to this. And there's something more to what's going on in these films. Um, you know, so you talk about some of the things that some of those sort of lasting impacts these films have made on our culture now. And so can you talk a little bit about that as well? Sure. It, it was it was really important to me that, that a book on 80s teen movie not be sort of an archaeological study of a lost civilization. Right. Because I, I don't think it is. Because on the one hand, uh, it's very obvious to me that we are living in the pop culture ecosystem that these movies created. Um, these movies, on the one hand, are the fulfillment of something that happened in popular music a generation before um, and probably uh, which is which is young people, particularly teenagers, being the center of their own story and right. telling their own story. We could argue that rock and roll was kind of up to that already in, in, the, in the early, late 1950s and early 1960s. It took film a little bit longer to catch up with that. Mm-hmm. And it really begins to happen in the 1980s um, with the movies that are featured in this book. Uh, but without that, we don't have, we don't have not only any teen movie you can name now, but we really don't have, we really don't have Lena Dunham. We don't have Taylor Swift. We don't have, um, we don't have, we don't have this idea. We don't have, we certainly don't have John Green in any of his novels. Right. We don't have, uh, we don't have this idea of an adolescent story being, uh, an adolescent self being as important a period in life as childhood and adulthood. Um, and so, that that influence is still being felt today and 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 the 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 overwhelming financial and cultural power of teen-centered culture speaks to that for better or for worse right. um on the other hand we have we we have been experiencing a boomlet in in Amer- in in 80s revival culture and i'm not just talking about like stranger things and stuff like that right. but the fact that that Arcades are are there's there, there is now an arcade you know where you can play vintage video games in basically every city in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, there is uh, there's record store day. Uh, it is it 
I'm not 24. I've got a cousin who's 24. It is apparently super cool to own a record player if you're 24 and you can buy one at Urban Outfitters. Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) Um, And so, I mean, the 80s was not like the 80s was not a, a, a great time for record like the record store movie would come along in the 1990s and -hmm. later uh with you know movies like before sunrise and and empire records and 500 days of summer and um but the uh but the idea that pop culture um places and modes of distribution and um and formats um are, are are not we that we don't simply roll forward linearly forever that in fact we circle backwards when we decide that a particular format or way of experiencing pop culture was was quite nice and we um and that we miss it and that there is something still to be gained from it uh and it not to be simply obliterated by this thing we call progress in air quotes (laughs) um the I talked to the guy for this book. I talked to the guys who run Barcade, which is which is a series of arcades in the Northwest. I'm sorry, in the in the Northeast and, and in the Mid Atlantic, um, which are a combination bar and vintage video games. And uh, they tell me that the yes, they have a lot of people there who um, who are in their 30s and 40s and nostalgic for these games. And they have a ton of people who celebrate 21st birthdays there. Um, not just because it's a fun place to drink and eat buffalo wings, but right. um, but because these are kids that missed arcades altogether and grew up playing these games on iPhones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've never experienced uh, Donkey Kong as something you can stand up and play. They've only experienced on a two inch by two inch screen. So, um, so it is, it is remarkable that these things from eighties popular culture s- stubbornly uh, carry on. Um, and I, I don't think they carry on simply because we're afraid to let go of them. I think they carry on because they have something special that their their future versions don't. Right. And so when we've been talking for a while, and so is there anything, like, do you have something you're working on now? Or are you just sort of promoting this book? Or sort of, do you have sort of a next project? Yeah, I have several ideas for a next project, and I um, I have a really, you know, I have a really, I have a really good agent who believes in me. I have I have a great publisher who also believes in me and my work. I have I have very very generous and and, and thoughtful editors that I work with for my journalism. Um, I, I I feel very very supported in whatever the next thing, whichever one of these ideas I choose to chase next. Um, right now, though, I need to I need to focus on i need to focus on this book reaching everybody who is interested in it and um and that um and 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 this is all because of the topic and not me that 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 is a very big pool so um (laughs) so uh i i i have i have to keep swimming for a while no it very much is and i passed it on to um some friends of mine who i know would appreciate it as well but um again kevin smokler the author of brat pack america a love letter to 80s teen movies kevin thank you so much for talking with me today you're welcome rebecca it was a pleasure